0: We'll hear argument next in Case 11-13-27, Evans versus Michigan. Mr. Moran.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, a long and unbroken line of this Court's precedent stand for the principle that a judge's final determination that a defendant is not guilty is a final determination of an acquittal for, for double jeopardy purposes, even if that determination is wrong as a matter of law or as a matter of fact. And even Do if we
2: give cretins — to how the judge labels what the acquittal is?
1: No. No. This Court must determine, whatever it's labeled, what has the judge done? Has the judge made a determination that the government has failed to prove its case, as in Martin Lennon, or has the, gov- has the judge made a determination of something else, as in Scott, for example, pretrial delay? Now, the Michigan Supreme Court
3: atti- Once the judge um, determines, quite erroneously  that uh, it has to be a dwelling. Mid Midway during the trial, I'm the judge. I consider this has to be a dwelling. Um, is there any way I can make that point, make that ruling, without invoking double jeopardy?
1: Well, you could reserve that ruling to the end of the case. Uh, you could make a ruling as to the jury instructions without or what the jury instructions are going to be without applying them to the facts of the case. In other words, without making a determination of the defendant's guilt or innocence. But, but if
3: I persist in that view, there's nothing the government can do?
1: The government can try, we learned from Smith, try to get you to reconsider that view before the defendant puts on his case. But once the defendant — once the judge has made a final determination that the defendant is not guilty, even on an erroneous view of the law. This Court has held multiple times that that is a final determination, that is an acquittal for double jeopardy purposes. Because,
4: I suppose, the judge is the government, too.
1: Exactly. Once once the government- So
4: whether the unfairness uh, inheres in the prosecution
1: or in the judge, uh, the the guy's been treated unfairly. If a state chooses, Justice Scalia, to vest acquittal power in its judges, it must accept the double jeopardy consequences of that. Even
5: Uh, when the defendant- interjected this issue, I and mean, the defendant urged the judge to make this incorrect notion that you have to negate the higher crime in order to convict of the lesser crime. It was the defendant that led the, the trial judge into error. The trial judge didn't come up with this on his own.
1: The judge came up with this, Your Honor, on defendant's motion, that's correct. But it was actually supported by the jury instructions that were in use, and actually it was supported by the structure of the statutes in question. The statute in question under which Mr. Evans was charged explicitly said that the building, other than one specified in the preceding subsection. But
5: you're not arguing that that was the correct charge. That the no, we're
1: precluded is- now from arguing that that's correct. Anyway, no. counsel often uh, uh,
4: encouraged judges to do the wrong thing. In fact, in every case, there's, there's one of the two counsel urging the Court to do the wrong thing, right?
1: Yes, Justice Scalia, and that, … That's what the
4: adversary system consists of.
1: Yes, and in Santa Bria, this Court noted that point exactly, that uh, all acquittals, whether they're by the judge or by the jury, uh, or I should say almost all acquittals, some are sui almost all acquittals, whether by judge or by jury, are upon invitation of defense counsel. Well, what if could the a State
3: provide a procedure where um … If a judge makes a critical ruling mid-trial uh, that, at the request of the opposing counsel, jury proceedings are suspended for 48 hours and the aggrieved party can run to the Court of Appeals to get a mandate?
1: I don't think the State could do that, Justice Kennedy, because of Smalis. Because of? Of Smayless. So that was essentially the situation in Smalis. You had a bench trial the judge grants a demurrer, he says the evidence is insufficient, and then the prosecution attempted to run to the Pennsylvania Appellate Court, and this Court said uh, they couldn't do that because that was a final determination. I, well, in
3: my hypothetical, the State says, and this isn't a final determination. The ruling doesn't become final until you have 48 hours to go to the Court of Appeals.
1: Well, I think a State could make could, — investing acquittal power in judges could put limitations on that acquittal power.
2: How would they do that? I'd like to go back to Justice Kennedy's question. It's easy when you have a jury, because what happens is a judge can decide whether at the end of the prosecution's case he's going to dismiss for insufficiency, or he can give it to the jury, and if the jury renders a verdict, set it aside. Jeopardy attaches only if the judge dismisses the case after the prosecution's judgment, but not if he sets aside the verdict, correct? Well, Jeopardy
1: attaches both ways, but a, but retri- a, a, a reversal is possible in the, in the latter. And the latter.
2: So what can a state do, some have done something, to ensure that even if Jeopardy has attached, that there can be a ballot reversal if the judge is wrong on a legal theory? Well, the easy- so, so give us an example of what, in a judge trial, a state could do. To ensure that a legally wrong judgment is still uh, reversible in a bench trial, your honor. In a bench trial, what could it do?
1: I I think if a if in a bench trial, if the judge has the power to acquit or convict, and the judge acquits, I believe the double jeopardy clause would preclude the state from coming up with a clever mechanism uh, allowing for allowing appellate review. Uh, The court, of course. I mean, the state could, of course. I thought
2: there were in your brief some examples. In someone's brief, there were some examples. In
1: a jury trial with a judge.
2: Now, forget about a jury trial. Let's go to the bench trial.
1: I don't know what.
2: You're not helping your argument by saying there's nothing a state could ever do.
1: Well, they could withdraw the power of judges to grant acquittals or convictions in the first place. In other words, they could abolish bench trials, uh, which, as the court noted,
2: you know something, counsel. You're sinking your hole deeper. I'm um, not helping yourself in this argument because how does that help the system?
1: Well, with all respect, your honor, I, the double jeopardy clause here transcends the the, the states. I don't
2: disagree. You mean no state could ever say to a judge, um, given given a render a verdict on the prosecution's theory and then set it aside if you think the theory is not legally
1: After Smith, it's clear that immediate reconsideration is a possibility. And if a state set up a system, as in Leiden versus municipal court, where you have essentially a magistrate making a preliminary determination, and then it goes to a higher judge who goes trial de novo, that, of course, is permissible. But if the judge is the final arbiter — in other words, if the judge sits in the place of the jury — this court has said over and over again that a judge verdict is equivalent to a jury verdict for purposes of double jeopardy. So yes, courts, the states could set up systems in which judges have less power than an, a jury does. I'm not aware of any state that's done that. I, I am aware of what Nevada has done, which has said that judges can't grant mid-trial directed verdicts, and that's a way in a jury trial. You keep
2: saying mid-trial. Yes. Um, what, what is not mid-trial? Some states require a judge to wait. Yes, yes. What Nevada. happens in those states?
1: Well, in that case, then there is no problem because if the judge makes a determination after the jury verdict, then the then that can be appealed under well, will. I, I
2: keep talking not about jury verdicts but about bench trials. I want to focus on the bench trial process.
1: If, it, but if the judge at the end of a trial renders a solemn, formal, final verdict, I find the defendant not guilty. In a bench trial, uh, I don't see a mechanism for for the state to appeal that determination consistent with the double jeopardy guarantee, unless the state has set up a system, as in Leiden, as, as Massachusetts did in Leiden. But short of that, uh, a judge's determination is entitled to the same respect.
6: It's true. In the middle of the trial, a judge grants a mistrial and says, "I'm sorry," grants a uh, uh, an acquittal and says, I think that prompt prosecution is an element of the offense, and uh, there wasn't prompt prosecution here. Now, could there be a re-prosecution in that situation?
1: Yes, Your Honor.
6: Even though the judge says he thinks that that's an element of the offense.
1: Because no part of my argument depends upon the judge's labeling. What the judge has done in that case is, is a mid-trial dismissal that he called an acquittal, but it was actually a dismissal for another purpose. That's exactly what Scott was talking about. And that is like Scott, where the judge may have characterized what he had done as acquitting the defendant,
6: but Well, he, he saw a phantom element, and, and that's what happened here too, isn't it?
1: Well, Well, uh, pretrial delay is not an element. Of the
6: offense free trial delay is another part of criminal procedure and, it, and this is it, and the fact that this was uh, not a dwelling wasn 't an element of the offense either but it is clearly related
1: to the offense and Scott clarified what Martin Lennon meant. Martin Lennon was uh, an attempt to distinguish between cases in which the judge makes a ruling relating to guilt or innocence and a ruling designed to serve some other purpose. The problem with the line the Michigan Supreme Court drew here is that it is completely impossible to administer, and if I can give a couple of examples. Uh, The Lynch case from the Second Circuit was an effort by one Circuit to attempt to to, uh, follow the Maker line, and uh, you get questions that are completely unanswerable in that case. Uh, Is bad intent simply a gloss? on the willfulness element, in which case all you've done is, is misconstrue an existing element, or is it, as the dissent claimed in Lynch, a, a new element? And, and these are questions like how many angels can dance on the head of the pen. They're simply semantics. It's all labeling. Uh, there is no — there is no substance there. Well, there,
6: that is, that's a problem. But you're — to come back to my earlier question, what is your answer? Your answer is that if the judge grants an acquittal based on the failure to prove anything that The judge thinks the prosecution has to prove that's an acquittal. Is that fair?
1: Yes. Uh, And I I fall back to this Court's footnote in Scott that courts are perfectly capable of distinguishing between rulings relating to guilt and innocence and rulings designed to serve other purposes. So if you have a devious judge who's determined to package a prosecutorial misconduct ruling as an acquittal, uh,
6: I have no doubt that an appellate court would be able to to smoke that out. Well, to come back to the argument we just heard, so suppose the judge grants a mistrial for failure to prove uh, an action within the statute of limitations, even though no statute of limitations defense was raised. Would that be — would that be an acquittal? Uh, only — I think my answer to that would
1: depend on how you rule in the prior case, depending on whether the statute of limitations is —
6: is something the prosecution has to prove in order to establish guilt. All right. Assuming for the sake of argument that it's not an element, it's not really an element, but the judge thinks it's an element.
1: Well if it's if it's something that could result in an acquittal, if it is if the defendant raising the statute of limitations is something that could result in an acquittal, because I I come to Burke's, where Burks says an affirmative insanity defense, uh, the prosecution fails to disprove that. Uh, That is an acquittal when the appellate court concluded that there was uh, failure to disapprove the affirmative insanity defense. That shows that that language in Martin Lennon can't be taken as if it was uh, construing the terms of an easement. Uh, You have to look at what was Martin Lennon getting at, and Martin Lennon is trying to identify those rulings relating to guilt or innocence, which include affirmative defenses or —
3: I'm I'm not sure I understand the rationale for your answer to your own hypothetical. The judge um, Characterizes a a prosecutor or a a misconduct um, incident as a grounds for acquittal. It really isn't. And you said the court of appeals could straighten that out. Yes, that's sky. On on what rationale? And so, what's the general principle that allows the court of appeals to do this sometimes and not others?
1: If the judge has made a ruling going to the defendant's guilt or innocence and finding that as in Martin, examining the government's evidence and finding that they have failed to prove the defendant's guilt, final. There can be no appeal. But if the judge has made a ruling that is designed to serve some other purpose, so if the judge, in my hypothetical, were to say
3: — Oh, uh, I, thought, I thought it was the judge just subjectively does this, but he doesn't say anything. He just characterizes it as an acquittal. That's, uh,
1: that's a case actually like some of the cases, and it demonstrates the problem of, uh, uh, of the — Michigan Supreme Court's line. So, example, in Martin Lennon, all the judge said is, this is one of the weakest cases I've ever seen. Uh, presumably, if the respondent were to win, they would be entitled to appeal a determination like that to at least try to convince the appellate court that the reason the case seemed so weak to the trial judge was that the trial judge had added an extra element. Uh, same thing in Smalis, where the judge simply said he granted a demurrer. By looking at the prosecution's case and saying, uh, I find the evidence insufficient. Uh, and in fact, in Smalus, the, the Pennsylvania tried to argue that the judge had actually heightened the burden for uh, mens rea for third degree murder. Uh, and, and so, uh, again, they would be entitled to make these arguments. And so then we would get into questions of in granting acquittals, would judges have to explain all of the elements?
7: I see, I see the problem, but I'm still back where Justice Kennedy was. Um, and I, it was my own failing here. I didn't quite understand it. I thought when you grant, uh, uh, dismiss, when you dismiss the case in the middle of the trial because the prosecution was brought too late, all you're doing is in the middle of the trial granting something you should have granted in the first place before you impaneled the jury. I thought that in Fang Fu, Judge Wisansky, Had dismissed the case after impanelment because he wrongly thought that the U.S. attorney had been talking to a witness or a juror or something at lunchtime. (laughs) And he hadn't been. I mean, that's his acquittal. And I thought Justice Harlan for the court wrote double jeopardy. Jeopardy attached, you can't try him again. And I didn't think the court ever overruled that. So, that — what? In where? Funk Fu has not been explicitly overruled, but I think it's been limited by Scott. So Scott says that even in judge-wise, Scott says Fong fu was wrong, that, that, because the reason that uh, Charlie Wisansky dismissed it is he had this idea of a, you, the USA doing something improper at lunch. And, and uh, that, that's that now on your theory, on the theory you just enunciated, Uh, There would, uh, there double jeopardy wouldn't protect against a second indictment. Right.
1: Well, Justice Pryor, Feng Fu actually listed two reasons why the trial judge granted a directed verdict. One was prosecutorial misconduct. The judge apparently thought that the prosecutor had been speaking with a witness. Um, But the second one was the total lack of credibility of the prosecution's witnesses, and, and when the case yeah yeah that's, and when when the case came to this court, um, the concurring justice said. the second one is good for double jeopardy purposes, but I would make clear that the prosecutorial misconduct rationale is not. That part, I think that concurring opinion has been effectively adopted uh, in Scott, so that a finding of prosecutorial misconduct, I'm dumping this case mid-trial, yes, the prosecution gets another bite at the apple, uh, uh, assuming that it's, it's done on the defendant's motion. Uh,
0: one One of the reasons we've said that underlies the double jeopardy clause is to prevent Prevent overbearing conduct by the government. That's not an issue here, is it? We said the government gets one fair shot uh, uh, at conviction, and if there's been a legal error below, they haven't had a fair shot.
1: Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I would respectfully disagree. Mr. Evans was hauled into court by the state. He was uh, acquitted, in our view, by the judge who was a representative of the state who was relying on the standard jury. Well, this business
0: about the judge being representative of the state—I'm not sure how far that gets you. The, the government is one of the adversaries appearing before the judge, and the judge is not supposed to take the government's side, so he's not really a part of the government. Um, uh, and it, it does seem to me that if they've been thrown out of court because of illegal error, that's not a fair shot.
1: Well, I understand that view, Mr. Chief Justice, but it's contrary to a lot of this Court's cases. I think this Court would have to review a lot of these cases. Most recently Smith and Smalis uh, and Martin Lennon all of which said that a legal error uh, affects the quality of a judgment, and and Scott also specifically said this, a legal error affects the quality of a judgment but not its finality for double jeopardy. Well, I suppose — No, no, I
0: know that — I'm just saying that that particular rationale for the double jeopardy
1: clause is not applicable in this case. Well, I think it is, because a citizen has been brought into court, expects to go through one trial, and they are told, sir, I am finding you not guilty. And then to find out later, to for the State to come back later. That's
0: looking at it from the defendant's perspective. We have said that the government should have one fair shot at conviction. And it seems to me that if they lose because of an error, that's not a fair shot.
1: Your Honor, I come back to the language in Martin Lennon, which talks about what the purpose of the Double Jeopardy Clause is, is to protect defendants against continuing government oppression. And that oppression arises from the anxiety of having to go through it again and again.
8: But isn't it, isn't it hard to argue with the notion that your client has gotten a windfall here? I mean, this is not continuing government oppression and, and uh, uh, you know, that's, that, that's, that suggests a real harm on the part of your client. I mean, here, because of a legal error, your client walks away the winner when he shouldn't have.
1: Well, Your Honor, uh, without the error, the trial would have, would have continued. But… Uh, I think that argument respectfully proves too much, because there are lots of these cases in which legal error was made. And so in Rumsey, you could say exactly the same thing about Mr. Rumsey.
8: Yes, I think that's right. This is — this is an argument against this whole line of cases, that this whole line of cases essentially has set up a system where the real purposes of the double jeopardy clause do not apply and where defendants walk away
1: with windfalls.
8: And I guess what's your best argument against that proposition?
1: Well, once you accept the equivalency of a judicial acquittal to a jury acquittal, you have to accept that both actors are capable of error. Both actors are human. Juries are are capable of making legal errors as well as factual errors. They're capable of misunderstanding the instructions. In fact, they're capable of being misinstructed. Had the judge not granted the directed verdict here, she presumably would have instructed the jury the same way, and the jury would have also acquitted Mr. Evans um, for the same reason. And so to try and tease out legal and factual errors, especially when often there are mixed questions of fact and law that are at stake here, uh, I think is a losing proposition. I think it — I think the Court has decided to draw a firm line. Recognizing that an acquittal is special, an acquittal is the most fundamental thing that can happen.
5: Could a system say, if you have a, a double jeopardy looming in, in, in the case, then arguments like the one that the defendant made and the judge bought have to be made pre-trial and if they're not made pretrial, they're waived. I mean, here, the, 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 the case was ongoing when the defendant made this suggestion. I suppose that the system had built into it a requirement that defendants that are going to make this kind of plea do it pretrial.
1: Justice Ginsburg, I don't think it would have been right for Mr. Evans to make this argument pretrial, because it was only with the prosecution's proofs that it became uh, clear that what the prosecution was proving was that the building burned was in fact a dwelling house and therefore seemed to be excluded by the statutory language and especially the commentary to the jury instructions from the definition of the offense. Michigan is an information state. Michigan does not require an indictment that lists every every uh, little bit of the crime and and all of the details. Uh, All Michigan requires is a very simple statement of the crime and the statutory citation and, of course, who the defendant is and and the date uh, and venue of the alleged crime. And so here, Mr. Evans would have had no way of knowing in advance uh, what the prosecution was going to prove. That's why this case is unlike Lee. Lee is an effective indictment. Nobody claimed that Mr. Lee uh, was innocent, and that the prosecution couldn't prove the elements of the crime against Mr. Lee. The problem was, is just the indictment failed to allege a specific fact. And I'm
2: sorry, I'm, I'm a little confused. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was charged with the crime of burning down a, a dwelling, correct?
1: Mr. Evans, no, he was what? charged with burning other real property. Of burning other real property.
2: And no specific statute was cited. Yes. Which one? The uh,
1: that that statute. uh, I have the dwelling
2: statute, not the not the exception to the dwelling.
1: It's the exception to the dwelling statute. It's seven. It's seven fifty point seven three, which is on page two of the topside brief.
2: That's what he was charged with. Yes. So why did the court dismiss if he was charged with burning down a house? I thought he was charged with burning down a dwelling, and the argument was he should have been charged with burning down a house. No,
1: he was charged with the crime on 750.73, which reads in relevant part um, that a person who willfully or maliciously burns any building or other real property. Or the contents thereof, other than those specified in the next preceding subsection right. section of this chapter. And the next preceding section of the chapter is about burning down dwelling houses.
2: Uh, my only quibble is, um, you had no doubt. The defense attorney had no doubt that he burned down a house. That someone burned down a house, correct?
1: Um, it was, it was allegedly a vacant house. And apparently, that's why the prosecution charged it this way. Got it. So they charged it. They're the ones who made the choice of which statute to apply. They apparently thought that they couldn't prove that it was a dwelling house, so they proved the other crime. And the thinking, what the thinking of the defense attorney and the thinking of the judge was that these two crimes were complementary to each other. In other words, that they did not overlap. It was either a dwelling house or not a dwelling house, and then one statute or the other applies. As a result of the ruling of the Michigan Court of Appeals in this case, which is now not contested, in fact, the burning — the the statute under which Mr. Evans was charged totally encompasses the greater crime, because any building is covered in the crime with which Mr. Evans is charged, while only specific buildings, dwelling houses, are charged in the
2: It's a sentencing enhancement is really what the argument is, the decision was. Well, there That every — you could be charged with burning down a dwelling, and you can only get the enhancement if they prove it's a house.
1: You can only get the greater offense. Exactly. Yes. But the a jury would have to make that determination, or the judge in a bench trial would have to make that determination uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Boffman?
9: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, uh, this trial here was ended before verdict from a jury on the motion of the defendant, opposed vigorously by the prosecution, alleging essentially that uh, the crime charge contained an uncharged element uh, on which insufficient proof had been presented for a rational fact finder to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that uncharged element being that the offense be, for want of a better ter- term — the excuse me, the structure be, for want of a better term, a non-dwelling. We that had not been alleged. But it's been conceded throughout the appellate history of this case from the Michigan Court of Appeals on that there is no such element uh, in, in, the, uh, in the crime. The statute that Mr. Moran mentioned that refers to the next proceeding section — Uh, over three decades ago was held to be words of limitation. In other words, you don't have to prove it's a dwelling uh, to prove that other real property or a building or other real property has been burned. Um, So in the 1970s it was held. The difference between the two statutes is the greater requires proof of a dwelling or a a habitation, the lesser does not. The judge held that you have to prove the negative of the element that enhances the offense in order to prove the lesser offense. You have to prove it's a non-dwelling. And again, that's been conceded to be error uh, throughout the entire appellate history here. And so the proofs were adequate, were appropriate here, and the charging document was appropriate here. And the question becomes, on these facts, does termination of the trial by the judge uh, constitute an acquittal so that jeopardy should bar a second trial? The Jeopardy Clause is aimed uh, at prohibiting certain governmental abuses that occurred historically. Um, One of them is when the government would terminate a trial that was not going well, without the consent of the defendant, in order to take another shot at it, to build a better case or perhaps get a better fact finder. And the Double Jeopardy Clause prohibits that kind of conduct uh, by establishing through this Court's cases that mistrials without the consent of the defendant. bar retrial, that abhorrent practice is barred, unless a manifest necessity is shown. And we've even extended that to the circumstance if the judge is intending to help the defendant. He is, is doing something that he believes is in defendant's favor. If the defendant has not consented, then that valued right to a verdict from the tribunal that he is before trumps uh, everything. But if there is consent, as there was in this case, the defendant asked the judge to terminate the trial without going to this jury, so he gave up his valued right. To a decision by this tribunal. If he does that, then that the other side of that coin is that is ordinarily outcome determinative the other way. A retrial is permissible unless the government has achieved the first harm uh, by the back door. That is, by goading the defendant into the mist. So
4: if if the uh, judge did this uh, on her own, that would have been okay, and there would be double jeopardy attaching. That's correct. So we have to decide in each case whether the defendant was
9: the initiating source of the error it in terms of the whether or not a judgment of acquittal was granted yes the both the federal rule and the michigan rule provide that on the uh, defendant's motion or on the court's own motion the court yeah. may uh grant a direct. What, what
4: if the defendant just agrees with the judge the judge says you know i think uh, this indictment is bad because you 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 have to show that it wasn't a dwelling place and the uh Counsel for the — yeah, that's, that seems like a good, uh, uh, good idea. Is, is that enough to I, — I
9: think that would be enough. I think agreement with the judge's course of action would be the judge would be, as in the mistrial situation, well, would be My goodness, the dis-
4: disagreement would be malpractice, wouldn't it?
9: Well, it, it depends on whether you really wish to get a verdict from this jury or whether you risk having a re- wish — risk — Wanting to have a retrial before a different fact finder, you may be very happy. With a bird that, right? in the hand, counsel. I, I, I. Well, sometimes that bird in the hand can come back and bite you uh, when you Mr. have a Balkan, second trial. What
8: would happen if the defendant asked for improper instructions? Really saying exactly something like this, you know, that the jury has to find this additional element that, in fact, it doesn't have to find. But your theory, I would think, would say that that too, the government could try the defendant again. After all, the government didn't get its one fair shot.
9: Uh, that's correct, and that's, that's the logic of Justice Holmes' position in Kepner, and we don't go that far essentially because this isn't a jury case. There is a logic to that position, but it is … You don't
8: go that far, in other words, just because it doesn't happen to be this case, but you right. concede that the logic of your position would extend to improperly instructed
9: juries. It, it would to a certain extent, but it is it is cut off by two facts. One is simply, as, as Justice Holmes often said, the, the life — the uh, an ounce of logic of uh, — excuse me, a, a, an ounce of logic is often trumped by a pound of history. We have historically said that a verdict by the fact finder, by the jury, terminates jeopardy and there's no inquiry into — Well,
8: we've historically said it in this context, too. I mean, the cases that you are asking us to overrule go back 50 years.
9: Well. When I say historically, I mean back to the time of the founding in terms of when the Double Jeopardy Clause was promulgated and adopted into the Constitution. Fifty years is is, is not back to when we were determining what it is we were protecting against when we adopted the clause, and as I think most of the commentators have noted, there's very little explanation in Fong Fu as to how the Court came out, where it came out, and there's been very little explanation since as to how we got from the common law prohibition of a retrial after acquittal on the merits by a jury to a ruling of law by the judge that no jury could find guilt beyond a reason without being the same thing, uh, which is where we are uh, today. It
4: well,
5: did not we, we right. didn't
4: have it at the time of the founding uh, any mechanism for a judge to do that. I mean, this, this, this is a new procedure, and how it fit into the prohibition of uh, double jeopardy was… Certainly, uh, an, an open question. It, it's not as though this procedure existed at the time of the founding or in English law before then, and, and was never adequate to uh, uh, to constitute double jeopardy. It's, it's a new procedure introduced. So the question for the court was: Well, you know, if it's the judge rather than the jury that pronounces the acquittal, uh, uh, do, does does that constitute double jeopardy?
9: Well i think you're exactly right it of course is a new procedure it didn't exist at the time of the founding so our question then becomes is this new procedure sufficiently equivalent to that procedure that is historically protected that it's that the protections that it is designed uh, to guard against are served when we bar retrial in these circumstances and i think as justice kagan had indicated there are many circumstances where what what we are doing is giving the defendant a windfall while serving no interest that was protected by the Jeopardy Clause. So if it's to be an analog, then we need to see, does it really closely approximate a retrial after acquittal on the merits by a jury? But
8: the point I was making was that the same windfall is received by the defendant that gets an acquittal from an improperly instructed jury.
9: That That is true, except we — we, we can speculate that's, that's true, but we don't know why the jury came back the way it did. The jury may have acquitted for an entirely different reason. We don't know. We don't have special verdicts, and we don't have any mechanism for inquiring. So we treat — you have to have a line somewhere. Jeopardy terminates with the jury verdict, which may have been misinstructed, but we don't know why they came out the way they did.
7: If the, so, now, I take it you, you, you agree that sometimes the prosecution — I'm not saying anyone would, but they — the defendant's acquitted by the jury, so because he doesn't find enough evidence, they don't find enough evidence, and so the prosecutor thinks, I think I'd like to try him again, and then he's acquitted again. I'd like to try him again, he's acquitted again. Now, substitute judge for jury, the same thing could happen. I mean, I, I don't see why not, and uh, there's no answer to that, is there? And if there's no answer to that, the same bad thing could happen. Well, then you're going to have to start distinguishing among which judge uh, or jury. Uh, uh, acquittals do or do not invoke the problem of the double jeopardy clause, and where I'm driving is that that there is a principle, and the principle was seems the simplest way to put it is where, in fact, the acquittal rests upon a judgment that there isn't enough evidence. That's it. That's what we're after, and uh, whether it some procedural thing or not, uh, maybe we aren't. Okay, now the virtue of that is it's simple, it's uh, consistent with the cases, it's been clear, and you're advocating let's go into that and change it or at least interpret the cases as consistent with it. And we're saying there wasn't enough evidence is because the judge had in mind a legal point that he was wrong about, then double jeopardy clause doesn't work. But if your judge was Right? does work, except for the matter of substantive evidence. Now, that way, says your opponent, lies a mess. I just went through that long thing because I don't want you to get — sit down without addressing what I see as a central problem. Namely, if we don't accept his view, it's going to be a terrible mess.
9: Well, let me say two things. One is we don't — we don't have the circumstance that existed at the common law that the Jeopardy clause was designed to protect against, of the executive simply saying after an acquittal by the fact finder, let's try him again, let's try him again, let's try him again. Something has to happen in between there, and that is that a court has to determine uh, — neutral and detached arbiters have to determine that. What happened when the judge granted the directed verdict of acquittal, as it's, as it's known in Michigan, was not that at all. The judge actually did something different. And if the court doesn't interpose on the prosecution's request, there will be no retrial. So it's not the uh, harassment and abusive practice of simply starting a new prosecution. We're trying to get what happened. At now you're beginning to make distinctions.
7: Yes. And once you make those distinctions, I go back to the question I asked, which was there is a distinction. The distinction is whether it's a procedural ground or uh, — uh, and Justice Harlan's, it's whether there was a, a — just talk to the U.S. attorney, I didn't like it, or talk to the witness, uh, or a prosecution brought too late. And the other side of it, where the clause attaches, is where it was done on a substantive basis, not enough evidence. I said, I don't want to repeat myself, but I'm saying what he's coming up with is a simple, clear rule, basically consistent
9: with the cases, and why shouldn't we follow it? Well. I think — consistent with the cases, and also clear, is to apply Martin Linden's supply by the very terms that it uses. That is, the resolution that we're talking about the judge making is moored to something. It's moored to the elements of the crime. We're talking about somebody being twice tried for the same offense. How do we define offense in the law? In other double jeopardy cases, this Court has taken an elements approach. Two two offenses are are different. If one requires proof of an element, the other does not. We look to the elements. And right to jury trial, this Court has been very active very recently in determining how is it that we determine when someone has a right to a jury trial on some fact before punishment can be imposed. We look to what are the elements that have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. If a fact is necessary to — to uh, — in order for punishment to be imposed, if that has to be proven, then it is a matter for jury trial and has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So when this Court said one or more of the factual elements of the offense in Martin Linden's supply, I took it to mean, and I have always taken it to mean, one or more of the factual elements. And we can identify what those are. We have to identify them in every case. This is not a, a, a strange process. You have to instruct on them, the determine judge, what they are, if, if and If the use judge those.
6: simply misinterprets one of the elements — that doesn't add a new element, you, you say that there would be
9: double jeopardy there, right? Yes. is Isn't that going to be a very difficult line to draw? It, it can be a very difficult line to draw, but uh, all tests can sometimes involve difficult lines to draw. We used to have a no-evidence test for whether evidence was sufficient, and we — that was changed in Jackson v. Virginia to whether a reasonable juror could find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and you will find a great many — the sense in cases between appellate judges on whether or not this case itself involved a sufficient proof for a jury to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The test is not always easily, easily applicable, neither was the no evidence test. So well, let me give you an
6: example. Tests. Suppose this a statute uh, makes it a crime to burn down a dwelling, and the judge interprets dwelling to mean a building that is currently lived in and therefore not including a vacation home and let's assume that's an incorrect interpretation now is that an incorrect interpretation or is that the addition of a new element to the statute namely that it is a building in which people uh, that's one element and the other is people are currently living there
9: Uh, i I would define um, i would draw the line at any time the court requires the prosecution to prove a fact that under the law passed by the legislature, the prosecution never has to prove in order to make out the case? Well, well, that's every misinterpretation.
4: I mean, I I don't know why this case doesn't involve simply a misinterpretation of what the elements of the crime are. I mean, any misinterpretation, you can uh — uh, w- w- which goes beyond the minimum that the, that the statute requires, can be recharacterized as adding an additional element. Well, it,
9: it does involve a, a mischaracterization of what the elements were, but not of an, an element. The judge didn't here say, you can't prove that this is a building unless it was a dwelling. You can't prove it was real property unless it was a dwelling. The judge said, you, have, you, you can prove those things and it's not enough. You also have to prove that it was a non-dwelling in this case.
8: But in several of our cases, what the Court has done wrong is to make the prosecution prove additional facts in order to prove an element. So the distinction that you're drawing is one between um, uh, uh, incorrectly making the prosecution prove additional facts and incorrectly uh, saying that the prosecution has to show an additional element. And I guess I just don't understand that distinction.
9: uh, I would suggest that this is an opportunity for this Court to draw the line at, it, it does, the, does the judge require, has the judge required the prosecution to prove something the statute doesn't require it be proven, it's not one of the factual elements of the offense, or has the judge, the error the judge can make under Martin Lindman's supply, has the judge simply misassessed the evidence? The judge has looked at it and said, you know, I, I — Understand all your proofs, I'm looking at them and they're just not enough for a reasonable jury ge- well, to if find out. If I
8: understand it. your test correctly, under your test, Rumsey, Smallis, and Smith would all have come out differently.
9: No, I don't think so. Rumsey is is a difficult case, but Rumsey is a verdict case. Rumsey is not a directed verdict case. The judge in Rumsey was the fact finder. Rumsey is your bench trial. Uh, it, it, it's complicated because it was a sentencing case, a death penalty sentencing case. That this court treats the hearing the same as a trial for double jeopardy purposes. But the judge was the fact finder, and the, it was more like a misinstructed jury. The judge. So helped. you're
4: saying that uh, your your uh, approach uh, doesn't solve the bench trial problem any more than uh, your
9: friend's approach, right? Uh, uh A a verdict is a verdict, I agree with Mr. Moran. When the judge on the merits returns a verdict, what the judge does or the jury does in returning a verdict on the merits is very different than what the judge does on a judgment of acquittal. The jury weighs credibility and assesses the weight of evidence, and the judge is prohibited from doing those things, is supposed to be by the law, in making his decision. His is a ruling of law as gatekeeper that that we won't even reach this decision. The jury is expressing its opinion based on the evidence, and although it, it can be proven that they've reached a result contrary to reality, they can't be right or wrong. Legally, their opinion is their opinion of those twelve collective people. After doing something the judge isn't allowed to do. So the directed verdict isn't, I don't think, a perfect analog to the jury trial. But the bench trial issue gets very complicated because it is possible to do something with the bench trial that we don't do with jury trials, and that's have specific fact-finding as to the elements. Many jurisdictions do. There is, in fact, a case — the Lynch case that Mr. Moran cited — where on rehearing on Bach, the court split evenly as to whether or not the judge's verdict, where the judge had actually specifically found all of the elements. Crime is elements A, B, and C, I find them. I don't find element D, so I acquit. The court split five to five on rehearing on Bach and whether or not that judge had really announced two verdicts and it could be reformed. To a conviction, and Justice Sotomayor was one of the members of the five who would have addressed the question of is that not different? The form of the language doesn't control, has not the judge actually entered a guilty verdict in that circumstance? That's a very you know, kind of off the beaten track kind of a situation in a jury trial where a judge simply takes the case from the jury uh, on the motion of the defendant. And resolves the fact that the legislature has not said that one needs to be proven, that is not one of the constituent parts of the crime, that is not something that need be proven to impose punishment under the law, then he's done something very different than what the jury's done. And to reverse that and allow the prosecution to have one full and fair opportunity, we believe, imposes no uh, cruelty or oppression upon the defendant. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, counsel.
10: Mr. Gannon. Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the Court. We believe the Court can resolve this case by distinguishing between the misconstruction of an element and the erroneous addition of an element to the case. But if the Court's unwilling to draw that particular distinction, it could also resolve the case by allowing the Government to appeal in both of those instances. This goes to the question that Justice Kagan was asking near the end of my friend's argument. Um, we don't think that that would require overruling any of the Court's cases. We think it would require narrowing smallest and Rumsey to their facts, and uh, — and, but Smith would not be a problem in that context. Rumsey is distinct for the reason that my friend suggested. It was actually a case involving fact-findings by the judge. The Court characterized it as a special verdict made by the sole decision-maker there. It was not an instance like this where the judge had taken the case away as a matter of law from the jury um, because there wouldn't be any sufficient evidence. It's been cited later on in these cases, in particular in Smalus, as being about uh, something like a sufficiency decision. But on its facts, that's not what it was. Um, Smith is about a completely separate question, because there's no dispute there about the appropriate construction of the element. The firearm's offense there, the, the, the element in question was whether the barrel length was um, less than 13 inches. There was a question about whether certain evidence that the firearm in question was a pistol was sufficient to satisfy that burden, but there was no doubt about what the, what the element was. It was 13 inches or less. And so it wasn't about misconstruing the element. Smallest is probably the hardest case in this context, but if you look at what actually happened in Smallest and what was at issue in the demur there, the decision that the Court was reviewing was one that was principally about whether there was sufficient evidence of causation, which was an undisputed element of each of the counts at issue there, and only in footnote seven of the court's opinion did it address a potential misconstruction of the element, um, and, and it was a different element. This was what um, my, my friend, Mr. Moran, mentioned. I'll go through this. My basic
7: question: Normally, a judge will wait till the jury comes in and then decide if the jury convicts him whether to set it aside. So there's no problem. So now we have a judge. For some reason or other, this judge has decided to grant the motion of acquittal in the middle of the case. Now this is unusual, I think, I hope. And uh, if uh, so, though, the judge might not think of writing down his reasons. So he might just say there isn't enough evidence. And now it happens that just before he did that, the defense lawyer argued to him an erroneous theory. All right. uh, An added element or something or other, some kind of uh, misconstruction of this. What happens then?
10: Well, I think that we we normally expect judges to give reasons for their decision. Yeah, yeah. But
7: this is a judge, after all, who for some reason we don't know what, decided instead of waiting, as they normally would do, well, granted, in the
10: middle of in the, in the state of Michigan, um, the rule does not permit the judge to reserve the ruling. On oh, I see. Motion. So there are a lot more so, places. And actually, in okay. the vast majority of states, they do it, um, they, That's the rule. Uh, the federal okay. rule was only changed in 1994 to allow this type of. And then, then this is a,
7: this has arisen a lot more than, than I think. All right, fine. Thank you. And and, and, and then the in that case, on, they have to write it
10: down. Well, I, th- I think that um, the the rule in Michigan and in the federal rule mm-hmm. twenty nine does require the judge to make a determination of uh, to satisfy that that, that there is an acquittal, which would mean that there's no no um, sufficient evidence uh, to to support. A, but
2: many a, a, states have a different rule. Many
10: many, many, states, many
2: states permit the judge to reserve it till after the jury. Th- I,
10: my my understanding is that most states do not permit that. The federal government only started permitting that in nineteen ninety four, and even. Um, The last time the Justice Department studied this, about 10 years ago, it concluded that notwithstanding the 1994 rule amendment and the federal rules, which came with advisory committee notes, strongly encouraging judges to reserve these sorts of decisions precisely to preserve the public's interest. So then, in other words, when in acquittal, notwithstanding that, Uh, what? Notwithstanding that, um, in approximately 70 percent of the cases um, in which there are Rule Twenty Nine verdicts—they are done mid-trial, even in the federal system. Um, it, at least in the early two thousands—is the only data collection that I'm aware of. And so, this this still is a problem. I think that um, it, if if it looks like the decision is based on classic insufficiency evidence, and there is no argument about whether it was—it's based on a misconstruction or an erroneous addition of the element, then we we would have to be. Uh, we would lose unless the Court's willing to overturn the broader line of cases um, in Martin Lynn, and Sanabria, um, Scott, and, and the other can, cases. Can you, you add
7: to guy. that just any your, your idea of what the empirical situation is in the last 30, 40 years? Have, have most U.S. prosecutors or prosecutors in these states thought that they could appeal uh, uh, an acquittal on, uh, in the middle of the trial, on the ground that uh, uh, the judge made a mistake of law?
10: Um, I, I don't think that they, they have— mostly thought that. The Federal Government certainly has maintained that 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 is appropriate in... We think that in um, the Maker decision in the Third Circuit in 1984 recognized this. Um, We do think that there is... Um, my, my friend, Mr. Moran, asks the Court to conclude that any decision like this that's predicated upon a supposed erroneous addition of an element could easily be re- recharacterized as a misconstruction of another element. And I think that, uh, that, well, at some formal level that, that, that might be theoretically true, in an egregious case like this, there's a distinction, which is that if, if this were um, uh, an element of the offense that needed to be charged in the indictment, at least in the federal system, then the failure to have alleged that the structure here was a non-dwelling would have made the indictment invalid. And the defendant would have been able to make exactly the same legal argument he made to the judge here, which is to say that the prosecution has failed to prove, has, has failed even to allege one of the necessary elements of the offense, which is that this structure is not a dwelling. We know yes, that but Mr. that particular —
5: if we, if we uh, adopt your rule, if- it can't be for this case only, and I, I think, that the characterization non-existent element, or a court misconstruction of an element. Um, I think in many cases you could do, call it one or call it the other. So that that's a, uh, a difficult line to 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 adopt.
10: Well, I don't think it's difficult in the sense that most, most of the cases that we're talking about don't involve this type of error. The cases that this Court has decided, um, Rumsey, Smalas, and, and, and Smith, even Petitioner doesn't characterize as <coughs> cases involving additional elements. And this Court has recognized in Lee that when the error is one that kept the indictment from being valid because it failed to charge a relevant element and the judge did not rule on that until after Jeopardy had attached, the government was still entitled to appeal that decision. And if it were erroneous, if this, the government's only going to get a chance at retrial if the judge's decision was legally erroneous, then therefore it demonstrates that there was no so-called acquittal on the, on the offense charge. So
2: you gave us earlier the statistics of how many judges grant Rule 29 motions mid-trial. I think you said 76 percent. What's the gross number relative to the number of actual verdict decisions by juries or the judge himself?
10: uh, The only data that I've seen about this is data that the Justice Department collected about 10 years ago. It was from the early 2000s. And and the conclusion there was that there were approximately 73 pretrial Rule 29 dismissals per year which actually is a larger number, number than, you, than you might at first think because that represents about 10 percent of the number of cases that were actually resolved by jury verdicts. Okay. Um, and so it, it, it is not uncommon. Um, I mean, this particular type of error that we have in this case we think is the most egregious kind, of the non-existent element error, which, which the government had also pointed out um, in its amicus brief in smallest, we think is the most egregious kind of error. It's one that demonstrates that the, the court is engaging in It's usurping the province of the legislature in redefining the scope of the offense. And we think under the terms of the double jeopardy clause itself, which talks about whether there's been — somebody's been subject um, to uh, being twice in jeopardy for the same offense, um, then it it matters what the offense was. And when the judge has redefined the the crime (laughs) so extensively that the indictment literally would have been invalid and could have been dismissed. Um, as not adequately alleging the elements of the offense. And we know that that's something that the government would have been able to appeal. We also know that the government would be able to appeal if the judge had reserved decision until after the jury had returned a a guilty verdict. Um, We acknowledge, as the State does, that jury verdicts are different. If a jury is misinstructed and a jury returns an acquittal, that we are not (laughs) quarreling with that in any way. We don't think that there's any purchase in the Court's case law to do that. And I think one of the reasons is because the jury verdict might be attributable not just to um, mistake or error, but also to lenity or compromise. There There are lots of reasons why we don't exactly know why a jury did what it did and why juries generally enter general verdicts. And that makes it different from what we have here. We have here an instance where the Court, as a matter of law, at the defendant's behest, took the case away from the jury. We think the fact that the defendant — Is that chose,
4: important at defendant's behest?
10: We do think that that's important by analogy to the court's mistrial cases in the double jeopardy context. So
4: you, you're arguing that this should only only be — this rule should only be applied when the defendant uh, asks for it?
10: Um, or if the defendant consents to it, as is the case in the mistrial cases in the double jeopardy context.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Moran, you have five minutes.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, responding to Mr. Gannon's argument, first, uh, I do characterize Rumsey as an additional element case, and I also characterize it as a misconstrued element case. It's, it's a perfect example of how these cases can be construed uh, either way. The judge required a contract. You can call that an additional element to the aggravating circumstance, or you can call it as a misconstruction of what pecuniary gain means in the first place. The same here. The error here can be construed as a misconstruction of the element that the property burned has to be a building, and the judge says, looking at the statute, I construed it to mean a particular type of building. Or it can be, as the uh, prosecution uh, construed it, as the addition of an element. There is no difference between the two characterizations. Turning to the, the broader question about this whole line of cases, and should this Court go back and revisit this whole line of cases, is there really a problem here Uh, We have no amicus briefs from any States indicating that there is a problem. We have only the amicus from the United States saying that there is a problem. Is there a problem here that justifies going back and revisiting 50 years or possibly 108 years all the way back to Kepner uh, all of this case law? Uh, We submit not, especially since, as this Court noted just six years ago in Smith, there is an easy solution if there really is a problem. If there really is a problem with judges going wild and granting directed verdicts mid-trial for no apparent reason, uh, all that has to be done is the states can follow Nevada's lead and say judges can't do that. Or judges as an intermediate or states as an intermediate step could at least give judges the power to reserve that.
3: Have any states done that? I'm, I'm somewhat um, concerned about telling a judge that uh, if the judge is the best judgment says there 's insufficient evidence that the defendant has to proceed with the trial uh,
1: I would be too, Justice Kennedy. I think it would be a mistake uh, i 'm not aware of any states since since this court 's decision in Smith that have followed nevada 's lead. Uh, there are good reasons to give judges disacquittal power, namely preserve the state 's resources, preserve the jury 's time, and, present, and prevent the defendant from having to go through a trial that is going nowhere. And so there are good reasons why states don't do this. States have apparently made the decision, even after being alerted in Smith, that there's something they can do about it, that the good of giving judges this mid-trial directed verdict acquittal power uh, outweighs the bad. Um, Finally, I'd just like to respond to Mr. Boffman's point, and it was also raised by Mr. Gannon, about how jury verdicts are different. There's something special about jury verdicts because we don't always know why they granted the verdict. But we have the same problem with judicial-directed verdicts, uh, and we have Martin Lennon where the judge just says this is the weakest case I've, I've ever seen. We have smales where he just says it's legally insufficient. Uh, if the court adopts the line that the prosecution and, and the solicitor general would have you adopt, uh, you're going to have to require judges to give very specific findings as to what the elements of the offense are and which ones that they, they don't find. And that itself would require a radical reworking of this court's jurisprudence. If there are no further questions, thank you. Thank you, counsel.
0: Case is submitted.